Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, it's Alec Baldwin here. We're going to take the next couple of weeks off, and we thought we would reach into our archives and give you one of our favorites that we released in January of 2015. Who better to celebrate the holidays with than the one, the only, Julie Andrews? This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories, what inspired their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. The winner is Julie Andrews. There's a genuine look of surprise on Julie Andrews' face when she hears her name called She did not expect to win the Oscar for Best Actress for Mary Poppins. She takes a moment to collect herself and makes her way to the stage. Uh, I know you Americans are famous for your hospitality, but this is really ridiculous. (laughs) The year was 1965. This milestone came early in Julie Andrews' career. She followed that extraordinary success with another one. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad... Simply remember my favorite (laughs) things And then I don't feel so bad Julie Andrews has performed in dozens of film, stage, and television roles But it was those two nannies, Mary and Maria, who captured our hearts and transformed her life Today she'll tell us what happened before, during, and after those performances So let's start at the very beginning a very good place to start. When I was about seven, my mother had remarried and my stepfather was a fine tenor. My school had closed due to the escalation of World War II and everything was shut down. And I would imagine that partly because I was underfoot a lot and home, but secondly, maybe in an attempt to get a little closer to this new stepdaughter that was not very fond of him, he decided to just for no reason at all just give me some singing lessons. And to my mother and stepfather's surprise, I had this freak, very strong, very, very huge ranged voice. It was very thin and white, but I could do all the histrionics. I could do anything. I hated those singing lessons because it was with the stepfather. With him? With him. He was your instructor? Well, he gave me some scales and a few things like that, but very quickly after that, he found a phenomenal teacher, a lady that was a dramatic soprano who was as wide as she was short and was as loving and decent and until she died, which was in her, somewhere in her 90s, had the most beautiful pitched voice and could still sing. And she gave me the foundation that, that, uh, in other words, hang on to your words, um, enunciate, because they'll pull the song through for you and all of that. And was she someone who you maintained any kind of contact with oh, if yes. you went on to become... Oh, yes. No, no, she was my teacher for most of her remaining life. I've worked with other people since, but that lady was, oh, my teacher. She prepared me for uh, My Fair Lady and um, the so foundation. She became successful. Yes, oh, and, she and saw that, yeah. She, she saw that. She always wished, I think, that I could become um, 
a light opera singer or a, or an opera singer, and I knew, in spite of her ambition for me, that I didn't have the voice for it. It was too light a voice, and I, as I say, it was a little white in sound. So I didn't have the chops for uh, opera, maybe light opera, and I have recorded a couple of old recordings of, like, um, Rosemary, and I've sung things from The Merry Widow and stuff like that. But when the world opened up, because I was in musicals, I realized that I'd found the exact weight for my voice, that I'd found the right thing. Did you study acting as well at the same time? No. <laughs> well, my mother occasionally put me with a teacher that was local from my hometown, and I was awful and mortified because I knew I was awful. And actually, most of my training, until very much later in my life, when I got a coach for films and things like that, most of it was just doing it and, and learning, and thank God it was Broadway first. No, no formal acting training? No. My background was vaudeville. I was from the wrong side of the tracks. I envied all those legitimate actors like um, Gilgood and uh, Olivier and so many of them that, that just managed and were terrific. And here I was, all I knew was how to belt out a song all around England. When you were doing this vaudeville work uh, in London, musical work. All over the England. Yeah. All over England before you headed to Broadway. Mm -hmm. Did you bump up against those people, the Gilgoods and the, and the OVAs? Yes, and I did. But um, more the people I really bumped up against were the great comedians of the day from England. I mean, I learned so much just watching and being in those rather lunatic reviews all you know and, and and as i say you know one week in each town but you considered yourself a singer yes not an actress first and foremost a singer you were a singer and then when much, do you think that changed uh, well much much later i realized that actually singing is for me all about the lyrics and then if you really care about the lyrics then singing is all about acting uh, but that didn't come till oh in my mid 20s sometime you did The Boyfriend when you were how old? Uh, I, it opened the day after I turned 19. 19? Yeah. I thought so. And, and who directed The Boyfriend? A lady, an English lady called Vida Hope, who had done it in London because it came from London. I was asked to come to Broadway, and I didn't think I'd want to, and I was very, very nervous about, you know, I had a terrible separation anxiety because of all my touring. From your mother? from my mother and, and family in general and my brothers. But my dad, my real dad, said, uh, honey, you know, what you're going for could last two weeks. Uh, they wanted me to sign a contract for two years. And uh, I said, eventually, thanks to my dad, who it, he said later it took him all the courage in the world to tell me to go because his heart was aching in terms of his nerves for me and what was I, what was I going to do? But he encouraged me to take it because it would open up my head. And did this woman, was she helpful to you, the director? Uh, yes, she was. Not, uh, well, she was, but she was very busy putting on the show. Sure. And everybody else seemed to know, you know, the boyfriend's all about being very, very uh, set in the 20s. And all the ladies of the show seemed to know how to be very camp and very funny. I had not a clue because I didn't know, I'd never been to acting school or anything like that. So I tried emulating them for a while. And then what really turned the tide was the producer of the show. Did you ever meet Cy Fewer? 
and Ernie Martin. Do you know uh, about I knew them? the name, Saifi, mm. yeah. Well, they did Can Can and uh, Silk Stockings on Broadway, I mean, as producers. But Sai had this wonderful uh, penchant for <laughs> dismissing everybody and getting in and directing it himself. And anyway, he, the night before we opened, uh, I was trying everything each preview night, seeing what am I supposed to be doing here? And he took me out to the... Um, uh, alleyway behind the Schubert and the Imperial and the Royal Theatres. Anyway, uh, he, we sat on the steps, on the uh, iron steps in in that alley. And he said, you know, you were terrible last night. And I said, yes, I did. <laughs> I know I was. And uh, he said, um, you have the possibility of becoming quite good and a big star tomorrow if you do as I tell you. And you must follow <laughs> every single thing I tell you. And I was so looking for that, you know, rope to hang on to. He said, I want you to play Polly Brown as if your life depended on it. He said, when he breaks your heart, I want you to feel it and be it. Forget what everybody else is doing. Forget camp. Be real. Best lesson I ever had. And because it was, it made sense in my belly somewhere, I made it as real as I could on opening night, and it indeed made all the difference. And then the next project, obviously, is... My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady. Mm. And who directed that production on um, uh, Moss Hart, the mm. great So Moss Hart, Hart himself was the director. Oh, yes. And what was it like for you? I mean, to the extent you can describe, number one, where was Hart in his career then? Well, And he, where was Rex in his career? Oh, my God. Rex was... Well, Rex was just known everywhere and had done a lot of movies and, and was... He was a huge, star. Big star. And uh, also... Difficult, no doubt about it. I mean, eventually we did become great friends, but it took a long time. And he was so fed up with this little ingenue that didn't know what the hell she was doing. I knew somewhere deep, deep down that if somebody would just spend a little time or pay attention, that I knew what I yearned to do, but I didn't know how to bring it out, Alec. So when they hired you, what do you think that they were? This is before you become Julie Andrews. Yeah, well, the boyfriend was a huge success, and it was a one-time, you know, I was very big on Broadway for one year, and then I So left. it just platformed off of that, yeah. off of boyfriend. And then I auditioned for um, Lerner and Lowe, particularly Alan J. Lerner, who wrote um, My Fair Lady, and Lowe wrote the music. And they worked with me a little bit, but it really was Moss who made me Eliza Doolittle. And what he did, Rex was demanding, wanted all the attention. He'd never done a musical before, and I'd never acted before, so which one did he deal with? Right. Well, of course, he dealt with Rex, who was the big, big star. Eventually, he got around to me, and he dismissed the entire company for one long weekend. And I remember <laughs> driving down to the rehearsal, and thinking, this is a little bit like going to the dentist. I may feel better when I'm finished, but it's agony going. And he, for 48 hours, just, he bullied, he cajoled, he showed me, he uh, yelled from the orchestra stalls, you know, oh, not that way, you're playing it like a, like a uh, schoolgirl, you know, get it, Julie, get down and dirty. And I actually, through him, found... Eliza Doolittle. And from then on, 
I worked and worked and worked, and gradually, from performing it, as you know, every night, it gradually became embedded in me. And I think I probably, by the time, you know, a few months would passed, and it was a huge hit. I was definitely feeling that I could be Eliza. When did you feel you won, had won Rex over? Probably, <laughs> that's a good question. Probably not till the London production. He was difficult himself, oh. and... Uh, I think he meant well. He was just very short and short-tempered and uh, not known for being full of... Um, uh, generosity. Tact and generosity, no. What I learned on stage with him was unbelievable. For example? He had this amazing knack. He wasn't musical, but he had a musical ear, not only for the music but for where the audience was that night. So, for instance, if somebody would cough, let me say he was saying, you know, Eliza, you shouldn't cough. You shouldn't do so-and-so and so-and-so. He'd repeat the line instinctively. He'd because incorporate. He, yeah, because he knew it hadn't been heard correct, you know, right. fully. Right. So just to stand and watch him, I completely sometimes forgot who I was supposed to be. Now, when Hart says to you, you're playing it like a little schoolgirl. You've got to get down and dirty. That becomes a theme in some of your work, doesn't it? Well, more, more, more than one man has said something along those lines <laughs> to you, hasn't he? Well, I do have a very squeaky clean image, but I don't think you can correlate well, the roles those you two. played. Yeah, well, the roles you yeah, played. Yeah, well, I think that's simply because if you think about it, Alec, here's um, Mary Poppins and followed pretty quickly by The Sound of Music, two hugely iconic films about nannies of all things yeah. and they're so successful that people only remember the things that that are the most successful you know if you think of someone like Clark Gable you think of Gone with the Wind right, exactly. and you forget the other things and I knew I think because of all those vaudeville years there was a lot of down and dirty in vaudeville I mean the comedians were blue and bawdy and it was a tough existence it wasn't a, a fairyland by any means. It wasn't a fairy tale. But when you're raised uh, during the wartime and your career in musicals is during the wartime, mm -hmm. and, uh, and you and I have this in common where you grew up in a very financially strapped condition. Very strapped, yeah. Money pressures constantly. Yeah. Things begin to change for you after My Fair Lady mm -hmm. a lot. Mm. And do you find that that was painful for you no, I tell you what, first of all, what, what immediately springs to mind is that I ached that I couldn't bring every member of my family with me. Right. Did you feel that too? Well, I wanted to help as many people as yes, I could. Yeah, and still do, but, right. but to change the way my life had been changed, miraculously it seemed, I wanted to do that for the entire family and make them feel better and be better. But when you do My Fair Lady on Broadway, then you went to London after that. Mm -hmm. You're married at the time. Um, I was married during the London production. So you got, you, you got married when you went to back Tony to London? Walton, when I went when back to London. When you went back to London. Yeah. So you're back home, you're married, and then what happens? Um, what happened was that right after I'd finished in London, and I was about as... You know, I did three and a half years in My Fair Lady, and that's a marathon. Yes. Two on Broadway. and That's epic. 18 months in London, and that is, and uh, Alan J. Lerner said that he thinks that an actress can learn more by playing one role in a long run than by playing 
many, many roles in repertoire. That's interesting. I've never thought of that. Well, the thing being, he said, you test every night with the same role, whether you can get a laugh or whether you can do it better. or And he was pretty right about that. I didn't think it would be right, but it was. You know, you'd know if it didn't work one night, and then you'd work on it and work on it and mm. try. And you found out everything you needed to find out about how to play, I mean, in the long run, how to play uh, with an audience when it's raining outside or when your leading mm. man has got a terrible cold or when it's up to you to take up the reins for a night or two because he's feeling down or when an understudy goes on or, I mean, just about every situation in the theatre mm. in the long run you, you experience. But when I, I think one of the first things that I felt, just to digress for a moment, was the relief of knowing that at some point in my life, probably during My Fair Lady in London, I realized that I probably would never have to go back to vaudeville again. Right, right. I mean, landladies and touring and endless. I mean, with the terrible digs that one had when one was touring around oh, London. Endless touring in very tacky shows. Right. And I knew I could do something better, but the voice held me up for so long, the freaky voice that I had. And then, as I say, gradually, gradually, the voice became less white and more vibrant because I was growing up and all of that. And as I say, I found my level when it came to musicals. What's your parents' view at that point? Where does that begin to change? Now you're something. Yeah. How did they handle that? It was very complicated because stepfather was an alcoholic. Mum was just, she was a very warm, <laughs> passionate lady. But on the one hand, she was thrilled for me. And on the other, it was always, you know, don't you dare show off and don't you dare do this. And then the next minute it was, I want you to wear your fur coat to the pub tonight, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And But really... Um, about a year after Fair Lady, uh, I was asked to do Camelot, and I knew I was going to do Camelot. Uh, in New York? In New York. And uh, Were you looking forward to going back to New York? Um, it was, when I got there, it was better. I'm not sure that going there, I mean, again, it meant leaving family. and right. Also because I do love my home country. You I do. love England. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I feel, this is so corny, I feel this huge... Um, I feel it's my job to to be the woman one that is the hands across the water. I want to bring England to America, and I want to bring America to the English. Somewhere mid Atlantic, we we <laughs> we can split the difference. But it felt very important to to speak for my country, and also because the Americans had been so generous to me for so long. Well, we're, we're in this timeline that we're tracking, it's about to get a lot more generous. So mm. you go do Camelot. Well, wait, but then I felt that I needed to explain that to the British and say, look how wonderful they are, you know, because the, you know, the British can be a bit snobby sometimes. Yes. <laughs> anyway, as I say, I do love my country and leaving, mostly leaving it because of my family issues, which were difficult and complicated. Um, and then going back, once I got back, Camelot was a joy with Richard Burton. That, that wasn't three and a half years. No, it was 18 months. 18 months. Another longish oh, Only one. with Richard or he was no, replaced no. by No, no. He did it for a year and then he went did off he to really? do Cleopatra, yeah. Oh. He did it, I think it was a year. I was left behind. The show's a hit? 
Not at first. This is what's so interesting. Coming after My Fair Lady, written by Lerner and Lowe, who wrote My Fair Lady, the world expected uh, another My Fair Lady. And because Alan was not very well, Alan J. Lerner, and Moss was not very well, he always had heart problems, um, there just wasn't, nothing quite went right and we didn't have enough time to work on it and so on and we opened on broadway to richard got us through i think richard burton you know everybody we were we had a solid booking for at least three months or six months because of richard and it was a glorious looking show but it did have flaws moss said i'm going to go and i'm going to um take a vacation but i will come back as did alan and they came back as they promised in three months and reworked the show, at which time we went on to the Ed Sullivan show. And in those days, Ed Sullivan was huge. Mm -hmm. As you know, he brought the Beatles and so many people to prominence in America. And what they did, instead of just having us on his show, he did a complete excerpt from Camelot. I think it was at the instigation of Alan and Moss. But we did the first act, which was like a little mini play all by itself. The following morning after the Ed Sullivan show, the cues around the block were as if we'd been a standing room only hit. And from then on, Camelot became a hit. When Camelot's over, where do you go? Uh, To um, 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 Hollywood. Because? Because Walt Disney came to see... I mean, in between, I did television shows and my wonderful fun shows with Carol Burnett and things like that. But basically, chronologically, um, Walt Disney was advised to come and see Camelot because there was a girl in it that might be good for Mary Poppins, none of which I knew. And he came backstage to say hello. I just thought he was being very civil, that he was going to say hello to me and to Richard and that would be that. And, you know, everybody knew Walt Disney was in the audience. But he came and he chatted in my dressing room with me and with Tony Walton, my then husband. And he said, I wonder how you'd feel if you came out to um, Hollywood, you know, to hear the songs and see the drawings that we've done, storyboarding, as they called it, mm-hmm. for um, Mary Poppins. And with huge um, regret, I said, oh, Mr. Disney, I, I would love to, but I have to tell you that I'm three months pregnant. And he said, well, that's all right. We'll wait. And, of course, I did not know that pre-production and all of those. I mean, it's endless in a fairly big movie, as you know. So we went on out. Disney was delightful and spoiled us both wonderfully. Hearing the songs for Mary Poppins, it instantly evoked those vaudeville days, the rum tum kind of quality of a jolly holiday. Familiar, and familiar to you. Very, and I knew I could embrace it. Not only that, but he hired Tony on the spot when he saw his portfolio. And he commissioned Tony to do all the costumes for the movie, which is incredible if you think oh. about it. And the sets for Cherry Tree Lane and the interior of the Banks household. And Tony got nominated for an Academy Award. First time out, first film. Oh Amazing. God. I did not know that. It was Walt's talent to... He had such a talent for spotting talent, in a way. What, what, what was representation 
for you like back then? Which is an odd question, maybe. No, I, don't I get think so. it. Meaning you had British agents. Did you finally get yes. a Hollywood agent? Uh, Who's handling your career? Well, from the time I was about 13 and starting off in show business in England, I was handled by an American gentleman who lived in England and who had kind of made his base in England. He was a good agent. But, uh, and his name was Charlie Tucker, and he was a very kindly, nice guy. And all through my teens and all through um, My Fair Lady and Boyfriend and Camelot, I was represented by him. But there came a time when, um, well, one or two things caused a falling out between us. And then I, when I went to Hollywood, ultimately, probably around the time of The Sound of Music, I did change my age. When you're out there, it does help to have a native. He was so used to the English scene, and you're right, it does help to have a native there. You go out there and you start shooting when? Your daughter's how old? Uh, well, she's only like um, three or four months old when yeah. we began rehearsals. and we In California? In California, on the back lot of the Disney... Who directs the film? Um, Robert Stevenson, and one of the good, true uh, Disney... Uh, uh, stable of directors. Stable of directors. That's and, a very and, and, nice and, way to put and, and, it. And how did he compare to your other experiences in the theater? Well, it was film. Yeah, very uh, technical. Very different. And he taught me a great deal. He was very patient. And and I quickly, you know, I very soon realized the patience that's needed to make a movie. And you'd sit around for ages, particularly with Mary Poppins, because all of those special effects took such a long time to set up, you know. And did you begin, as as many people do, I think, who have the success you've had, did you begin to, uh, you know, kind of feel your way toward your own relationship with the camera? Yes. Well, at first I was very well guided and very well looked after, and I always have been, to be truthful. Uh, Robert Wise was a, was a great mentor in that respect. But the man who taught me about lenses, and I wish I had paid even more attention, a dumb girl that I was at the time, was Hitchcock. I said, you know, I know very little about lenses in my British, vague, innocent way, very green. And he said, you don't know about lenses and you're a woman. Come with me. <laughs> and he spent oh, 40 minutes on, on drawing and showing me that this, would, uh, this lens would make my nose grow much longer than it should and that a lady should never be shot with anything but a whatever 40, it was. Yeah, whatever. that's right, or well, 35 maybe, you know, yeah. something like that, yeah. Now, when you, so you do Mary Poppins. How long did it take? You were in Los Angeles for months and months? Quite a long time. And then there's all the post-production and looping and things like that. But then very... Was Dick always the person cast in the film? Yes. He was always going to be. Because uh, he was a big star then. Huge. Right. Yes, yeah. And dear. Just darling. Sure. And because, because it had that vaudeville thing, we were both able to literally kind of kick up our heels and have fun together. And uh, um, he knew his accent was just appalling sure. as a cockney. But I could empathize with that because mine was when I went out to do Fair Lady. And I had to be a cockney and I wasn't very good. But uh, I learned. In rehearsals for My Fair Lady, her co-star Rex Harrison said of Andrews, quote, If that girl is here on Monday giving the same goddamn performance, I am out of the show, unquote. 
Yet when Harrison accepted his Academy Award for the film version, he professed his deep love to both Audrey Hepburn and Andrews, calling them two fair ladies. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Julie Andrews may be known the world over for her portrayal of two very proper nannies opposite Christopher Plummer in The Sound of Music and Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins, but her films aren't all so wholesome. With her second husband, director Blake Edwards, she made films like Victor Victoria. But even early on, she did a film that challenged her squeaky-clean image. Seems I don't mind making love to a scoundrel, but I... I think it immoral to marry one. The Americanization of Emily was a comedic war drama and also a love story. Although I've always felt that I wasn't the perfect girl for that role, I am so glad that I made that movie because it did stop to some degree, that very saccharine image that I was sure. getting. In Americanization of Emily, so there's no music, and you're not this squeaky clean woman. You're a woman. Well, trying to be, yes. Well, you, know, you, 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 you are. Take my word for it. You're a woman, <laughs> and you're a glamorous leading lady in this wonderful film with Jim Garner. Did you find you were just as comfortable? Did you miss the music? Did you think... Uh, I didn't miss it, but I have to say that ultimately, the music in a musical makes, to me... A vast difference. I mean, I made many musicals after that, and the joy of doing a fun. film with music on screen is right. just, well, it's, you're filled. I mean, think of it, you know, um, whenever there's a, a, a huge orchestration and a wonderful song, you're just filled. Well, with I, never, I've, I don't sing and I don't do musicals, but I'd say with, with comedy, people say, what's the difference? I say, well, and I would imagine it's the same with a musical where a musical uh, or comedy is fun. And that a drama is challenging. Yes. It's not, it's not, it's yeah. necessarily Although fun. Blake used to say that, that doing a comedy is far harder than doing a huge dramatic yes. role because you never know if people will think it funny. But that's speaking from his writer's point of view as well, as well as being a director. So when you're done with Americanization of Emily, where do you go? Uh, then to The Sound of Music. You come back to do Sound of Music. Mm -hmm. And w when does the Oscar for Mary Poppins come? Before, Just during, I'm, or no, after? During the Sound of Music. Dur so you're shooting Sound of Music. Yes. You're shooting the next movie that's going to be the next big well, stepping stone it. in your career. Yeah, without knowing. And you it. win the Oscar. And when you win the Oscar, give us just one sense of how you felt when you won. Actually, I felt, you know. Um, how old were you when you won an Academy Award? Oh, God, you had to ask. Um, Dear God. You're a young woman. Maybe 30. I honestly don't know. 29. Was I? By my calculation, you're 29. <laughs> Thank you you're so much. You're not even 30 years old and you win an Academy well, Award. Back me. then, which was, which was hard back then. Well, here's the thing. I felt somewhat unworthy of it, and I'll tell you why. Because there was such a sort of building outrage that I hadn't gotten the part of My Fair Lady on film that I thought my Oscar was a token of, you know, our oh, poor kid, well, let's give her the Oscar. It was compensatory. <laughs> it can be, yeah, exactly. And I felt it was almost ridiculous, and I didn't show it for many years. So when you went back to the set of The Sound of Music, uh, do you know, having that's just won the I Oscar, I'm just curious if everybody 
you know, if you, if you had a remember. bigger trailer that you went into that day, or if, did anything change? No, I don't think so. Um, did, your, did things change for you? Well, from then on, with the success of Poppins, and particularly after The Sound of Music was made, then it was probably one of the busiest times in my life because then, as you well know, Alec, then you get a, a, a press agent and you get a manager and you get this and you get that, and everybody wants to know a piece about you. Mm. Very often, not not always, certainly, but f- from my vantage point, musicals are shot a certain way with a kind of a kinetic energy to the camera and so forth. And what I love and what I always notice about Sound of Music when I see it periodically is that Robert Wise shot it like a drama. Yeah. It's beautifully shot. Yeah, it it's is one a, of the most beautifully photographed it's one of Yeah, it is one of the last of the really great Hollywood musicals. The the technicians, the people who built it, the people it's who... like Seven Brides, you know what I mean? Really yeah, beautiful photography. Yes, exactly. Um, and what was Wise like? He was kind patient, endlessly patient. He had a, a, a watch, a fob watch, which he took out and, and rubbed like um, uh, one of those stones that you, uh, you know, like a stone that's comforting. Mm-hmm. But he taught me a lot. He taught me to be still on film mm-hmm. because, you know, when you're... In, and quiet. In, yes, and hugely in close-up. If your eyes are darting from your Make the audience eyes, come to you. Well, I don't know about that, but he did say just chill down in a way, you know, and uh, and he was not chill down, just be still. Yeah, do yeah. less. Yeah. And, but then he let me also do the things that I felt I wanted to do, like the thrill or the excitement or the fact that Captain Montrap wanted me to stay and, and that, that kind of just bubbles up and he let that happen. There's such a bad boy quality to Chris. Yeah. I, he's such a bad. I mean, oh, he I, I, is a bad he, boy. He is, he's so bad, but he's delicious. You no, know, he's, he's the greatest. I, I worship Chris, and I did a television movie with him. I'll never forget. I go see him do uh, King Lear at Lincoln Center, and a bunch of us go downstairs to his dressing room, and he's in the big star dressing room at Lincoln Center, <laughs> and we're waiting in this ante room, and he comes out, his hair slicked back. He just took a shower, and he has a bathrobe on, and he has a little cravat around his neck, and he walks up to us, and he's just done Lear for three hours yes, on stage. exhausting. And he walks up to us just like he'd been playing tennis. He said, anyone like a sherry? <laughs> It was all like, well, now we're going to have a party in my oh dressing room after God. I've done Lear. He yeah. is just incorrigible. He is. And you know, for a long time, um, he put down the sound of music. He thought yeah. that he was doing something that he shouldn't be doing. Sure, you can tell. Yeah, but later, he really acknowledges he what accepts it, what it means to people. Well, yes, not only that, but what it meant, not to his career, but to him as a human being. He realized that he could give so much pleasure that, it, you know, and that's a huge huge lesson. Do you have a favorite musical number from Sound of Music? That's hard. Yep. I do have a song that's my favorite, but it wasn't mine. What song? It was Edelweiss. Right. I'll tell you why. Richard Rogers had this phenomenal gift for writing utter simplicity. Think of, oh, what a beautiful morning. You know, da-da-da-da-da-dee-dum. Now reverse it. Da-da-da-da-da-da-dum. You know, totally simple but with a wonderful lyric it becomes a magical song and oh what a beautiful morning was like that and Edelweiss was like that utterly simple and I suddenly realized that it's about anybody's homeland Mm -hmm. not just about Mm -hmm. Austria's 
Austria being the homeland for this particular movie. Must have done something good is my favorite song. Is it really? Oh, my God. It was one of the last songs uh, oh. that were written. And I think... Beautifully photographed moment in the oh, film. Oh, yeah. And that... That is phenomenal. It's my favorite moment of the uh, movie. The, yeah. Oh, my God. I wish I had hours and hours to tell you something. Because we, we, we get the love story and the singing yes. in your films. Yes. Where in this period of time does your first marriage end? Probably. What film? Or after what film? Toward the middle of, of The Sound of Music. Sound of Music. Yeah. Did but, that affect your work in the film? It made me very sad, right. very sad, because I didn't want it to well, I understand. I'm doing, yeah. It's interesting. I only ask it because it's interesting how you see you, you're watching the film, and this is what that person's going yes. through while yeah. they're Because we all have also, lives, you know. Uh, location and being lonely, and but also, you know, and I had my beautiful daughter, and what was I doing to sure. her and right. all of that. It wasn't that there was anybody else or sure. anything like that. It was just it was just Tony and I were, have remained, thank God, uh, friends to this day. He is my one of my dearest friends and always will be, and we both feel that way. He says the same thing about you. Does he? Of course. Of course. I mean, he's so amazingly talented. Now, uh, what was it like to work with Hitchcock? <laughs> You've been dying to get well, to that. Because people always say to me, you know, well, what is something in your career that, you, that excites you when I say, not a whole lot in terms of yeah. making movies, because what I wanted to do uh, you know, if if I had a wish, I'd rather make a movie with Bogart or Hitchcock. Yeah. Or, you know, that, that kind of thing. Hitchcock was lovely. He was a little dismissive of the script, a little dismissive of his actors because that was his reputation. He was a little taciturn. No? No, more... Um, in Hitchcock's mind, he'd already conceived and almost shot the film. So that's true, that, that yeah. the pre-production of him was... Was far more important. important. And once he'd conceived his shots, he felt that the rest was all just, you know, the actors will do their thing and, and I know what I want. For him, it was about audience manipulation and also, you know, he, he would say to me, come and look at what I've done. I've made a Mondrian, he would say, a Mondrian painting. And he would make me look through the camera and indeed... The background and, you know, two faces very close together and then in the background this wonderful red, white and pastel uh, colouring. And he said, isn't that a Mondrian background? And I said, yes, indeed it is. Thank God I knew what he was talking about, having been married to Tony Walton. Indeed. Uh, he loved doing things like that. That turned him on. And then he did love his leading ladies. He did. How was he with Newman? Very sweet, very sweet, and and he let, but but as far as the script was concerned, he said, "Say anything you want," because we would say, "That's a little dip," you know. Well, say what you feel like. I don't care. One felt somewhat abandoned by that, but this was late in his career, very late. Right. And when you think about the early Hitchcock movies, they were written by phenomenal uh, uh, talents. I mean, you think of the Bergman films or the, the, that he did, or. Uh, just any of them, you know, with Jimmy Stewart and so on. But this wasn't a, this wasn't as exciting a movie. But he was far, far more interested when I knew him in making the audience so scared and then suddenly laughing. What was Newman like to work with for you? Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he was the, he was a dear. He he coined a phrase about me which did my career a great deal of good. He said, she's the last of the really great broads, he said. And it stuck, thank heavens. 
And boy, did that help at that time, I can tell you. Well, you and he have something in common, which is that after you become incredibly famous, you don't stop seeking and you don't stop trying. You know, Newman's greatest performance comes years later in his career when he does The Verdict. Where did you meet Blake? Um, well, we, we were ships that passed in the night 10 years before we really met, uh, just at a party, that's all. But truthfully... Um, our first meeting was in the middle of Sunset Boulevard on the Meridian. There was a gap on Roxbury. And if you wanted to cross over to go down Roxbury, you, then the traffic was bad. You had to stop in the Meridian. And I found, as it did Blake, that he was going one way and I was going another. And um, that it happened with a fair amount of regularity that we always seem to stop in the meridian. And so one day, after about the third time or the fourth time, he rolled down his window and he said, are you going to where I just came from? (laughs) (laughs) And he was in therapy and I was beginning my therapy. And I said, yeah, I mean, different analysts, but they were all on Roxbury Drive in those days. So occasionally we would wave because by now we knew... Um, Had you who, known who he was? No. Uh, but then very... Sh- yes, I guess I did. Uh, I don't know. But very shortly afterwards, really comparatively shortly afterwards, I got a phone call saying that Blake Edwards wanted to come and see if I... to pitch a film and see if I'd be interested in it. There was some dickering about... did I, I wanted to just meet him very... In an abstract way, the Beverly Hills Hotel, and just have Very a coffee. Formal. Very formal. And he said, "No, no, no! I'll just come to you. It's not going to be that long." And my family was staying with me at the time. My mum and my stepfather were visiting. And by the end of the time that Blake and I spent together that evening, when he came and told me the story and asked if I'd like to do it, I knew that I wished he would stay for supper. And in fact, I asked him to, and he said. I would love to. And he told me afterwards that he really would have loved to stay for supper, but he had an appointment and he had to go to probably a date. I don't know. But I did ask him before he left. I said, you must forgive me, but I've been so busy. I'm not particularly with it in terms of what you've been up to lately. And he said, oh, I finished a film a little while ago called What Did You Do in the War, Daddy? And I'm having a preview of it for some friends next Wednesday. Would you like to come? And then I thought, oh, uh, what do I do? And I said, finally, yes, I'd like to. Thank you. And apparently he said I laughed so hard during the movie. He thought, that's the girl for me. And uh, it took three, almost four years before we were married, but we began dating. Are American men different than British men? That's an interesting question. Yeah, of course they are. Yeah. Yeah. A little more worldly, perhaps, or... A, yeah, they are. It American like men it, are? Mm. No. I think so. Really? Well, at least you give the impression that way. Uh, you did, did you find that he was really very keen on working with you? He didn't want to work with anyone else once he'd met you? Was I it, was think Was it hard so. for him to? Yeah. I think that might be true. I certainly... he. He knew me so well, and he knew... A lot he, of men are that way. Yeah. When, they, when they meet the woman in their lives, they're like, they want you yeah. around. I mean, I'm so proud that I did do seven films with him, and and some of them were just such fun. SOB, for instance, was the most fun 
making a movie, I think, that I've ever had because William Holden, Robert Preston, Richard Mulligan. And it was such a happy company. And we happened to shoot a lot of it on our own property, believe it or not. And um, uh, But they'd come on the days that they weren't called to the set. They'd come down and it was like a phenomenal repertory company. And we just had a ball. And it was bleak and black. And I was poking fun at myself a little bit and my image. And Blake, Blake had been through a huge bad time with Hollywood. He was the bad boy of Hollywood. And for a while, he wanted nothing to do with it. And that's when we went to live in Switzerland for a while. And then uh, he wrote his demons out in this SOB. SOB. Mm. Now, who wrote the screenplay for Victor Victoria? Blake. Blake, Blake wrote for the, the screenplay. For the musical. Adapted from, no, no for, for, for the film. For the, for the wrote, musical. He, right, for, he wrote the screenplay for the, for the, for the for film. For the musical, yes, he did. Now, when you do the ones like Darling Lily and, and, and even SOB, had a very mixed re- you know, reception from people, when you're doing the ones that work, do you feel it? Because Victor Victoria is one of my favorite movies of all time. Robert Preston. Um, yeah. Oh, God. Well, having worked with him also on SOB and then to work with him in, in uh, Victor Victoria, he was fabulous. Dark man. I mean, troubled man. Preston. Mm. Really? Mm. But not on the set. Oh, my God. No, so... in his life, in his personal life, I think. Uh, but when you were doing it, did you know it was going to be successful? No. You didn't? No. You never know. I mean, can you honestly say that you've made a movie that you knew? No, no. no. I I did a movie once, and I said to the the producer, we were shooting, and I said, when's the movie coming out? He said, we're going to release it for December before Christmas. I said, great, because then we'll qualify for the nominations for this year, because we're going to win everything. (laughs) Actor, actress, director, screenplay, best picture. what happened? We're going to win. The thing was just like a... Just a just a bird poop in a bird bath, which was just, just plop. <laughs> I'll tell you something interesting. I had made three films before any of them were re- released. I had done Mary Poppins, Americanization of Emily, and The Sound of Music. Not one of them had yet to be released. They were all stacked up, you know, and being in post-production and all of that. I was having a ball because I was just playing at making movies, learning my craft a little bit, and having a wonderful time. Yeah, but when, when you do the movie, and the movie is a big success, whose idea was it many years later to take it to Broadway? And when you took that show to Broadway, you were You're 60. talking about Victor Victoria. Victor Victoria on mm, stage. Mm. Whose idea was that? Blake's. I mean, he'd, he'd make anything happen. He had that magic that said... How did you feel about playing that part eight times <laughs> Terrified. a week? Terrified. Uh, well, more than anything, I remember driving out of the city for um, a night. We looked back at New York City, and I said, Blake, do you realize with all those that skyline, we're hoping that what we're doing is going to capture that city? He said, I know. It's, it's terrifying, isn't it? And I said, but yes, it, it but is. But it did. It did. But the day that we opened, I began to get so nervous and so frightened and I blinked and got quite tearful in the morning and I said you know I'm I'm really very scared about tonight and he looked at me as if I was an idiot and he said well did you expect to feel any other way darling and I thought well no I guess not and he suddenly made it all all right you know the thing about Blake though is that he could turn adversity into good fortune always Uh, he lost his leading man on 10, and then cast of all improbable people, Dudley, Dudley Moore. Right. 
and I was cast, and I said, Blake, you know, my height and Dudley's height, are you sure that we're going to be um, look romantic together? Because it's okay if, if I'm not in the movie. I'm your wife. I'm loving what you're doing. He said, honey, think of, think of Frank Sinatra and Ava Gardner. Think of Andre Previn and... What was so attractive about him? They're not huge people, but they're very attractive because they're so damn bright. And that gave me the motivation for my character. When we talk about your career from the onset, uh, one of the things that I hear you say again and again is how important your family has been to you. And, and how you, lucky I think I am. And you been. wanted to go back to England and see your mom and your siblings, and you would go back to England, and you and, and then they'd come out and you'd ship them to California with you. Mm. And now family is a big part of your life again. It is. Because always you have has a, been. So, always has been. But in, now the, 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 the latest of that is your book writing career with your daughter, Emma. We've had a, 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 a wonderful writing collaboration now for 15 years, maybe 17 years. To date, we've done... 27, 28 books together, and it's just ongoing, and we are so happy. Your, your daughter's a pretty tough customer. Do you think so? Well, she's very smart. Well, that's not tough. It's right. just so, 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 so is she a good writing partner? <laughs> she writes better than I do. Yeah. She's a much better writer than I am, and she is smart, and she's got the biggest heart of anybody I've ever met. She's, it's just hugely generous. Mind you, I have to say, I have four other kids as well, but they're not yes. all my... Emma is my daughter with Tony. But I have two stepchildren, two adopted children, sure. and we all, at one point, were we flung them all together, and partially thanks to Emma, who was somewhere in the middle there, it all worked. It has definitely worked. Julie Andrews has made it through some challenging times. There's a line in one of her children's books, the last of the really great Wang Doodles, that captures her approach. If you remain calm in the midst of great chaos, the professor explains, it is the surest guarantee that it will eventually subside. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing as a production of WNYC Studios. <laughs> 